Last week, I ran across an internet forum where someone posted the question, how come a lot of Christians don't go to church anymore? Well, the responses ran the gamut from concern to comical. Here's a sampling. One person wrote, where in the Bible does it say anything about church? <laughs> Obviously, he hasn't read it lately, especially 1 Timothy. Here's another one that still doesn't make sense to me. I, I've thought about it a long time. He said, someone said, sometimes the church walls don't feel comfortable. What does that mean? You, you want to be off the wall, not anyway. I don't know what that means. Here's a, here's a more insightful comment. Maybe people are getting tired of religion. Jesus is the answer. That I can understand. Another man writes, People prefer to stay home and watch the ever-so-tacky Crystal Cathedral instead of going to church. Also, the kids will want IHOP or something on the way home. So why make the effort? I mean, like the kids might crave IHOP. Get, give the kids a break, man. Get them some little fluffy pancakes with the smiley faces. I mean, what's the big deal about going to IHOP? Not a legitimate reason to skip church. Here's another. The big churches always emphasize money before everything else. Could be true. And finally, some churches have become like exclusive country clubs rather than the caring churches they were supposed to be. Well, this message board was a mix of flimsy excuses coupled with honest concerns. But overall, I got the impression that the church has fallen out of favor with the majority of respondents. You know, a recent statistic caught my attention. 80% of Americans now believe you can be a good Christian without ever attending a local church. To me, this is far more alarming than just shrinking attendance figures. This means that even among Christians who still attend church, fewer believe its role is strategic. For many folks, the church has become irrelevant. And I suspect a sinister force is behind this trend. If Satan can't defeat the church and sink the ship, then his next best strategy is to spread misinformation so no one will want to come on board. I mean, just play on American individualism, and you can reduce the congregating of believers to a non-factor. I'd rather see churches attacked and persecuted than labeled obsolete. In modern society, the church is becoming more and more immaterial to the argument. We're kept at arm's length. We're deliberately ignored. Imagine, Jesus' blood-bought church shoved out to the edge, to the borderlands of society, rather than smack dab in the center of the discussion. And yet, tragically, that's happening to churches in America. Call it erosion. Understanding and appreciation of the church and its mission is eroding in America. And I believe it deeply grieves the heart of God. I've spent the last 30 years reading God's Word. And as far as the Bible is concerned, the local church is the Holy Spirit's outpost on the front lines. I've heard it put, the church has many critics, but no rivals. Spiritually speaking, if you want to know where the action is, look to the church. In a world where families are crumbling, the church stands as the household of God. 
In a world of death and dying, the church is called the church of the living God. In a world of meaningless blogs and opinion, the Bible calls the church the pillar and ground of the truth. This fall, Calvary Chapel has celebrated our 30th year of ministry. And yet, after three decades, I still sense this struggle more than ever. I constantly battle this erosion. And not just among nominal believers, but also with Christians who say they're committed to the church. Do we really respect its place and its purpose and its priority? For the last 10 weeks, you've heard me say, the church matters to God and it needs to matter more to us. I hope you've taken that to heart. Since September, we've been discussing the local church. We've tackled the book of 1 Timothy and we've called our series, Church Mechanics. For the church is like an automobile. Pop the hood on a car and you'll see that the engine consists of different systems. The ignition system and the steering system and the brake system, etc. Likewise, the church is made up of various elements. Church ownership and leadership and doctrine and fellowship. For several months now, we've had the hood up on the church. We've been examining what's under the hood. We've seen the church's muscle car power. We've kicked a few tires and we've held the keys, though they can get heavy. We've noticed the church's other features. Its ownership belongs to Jesus alone. Our role is stewardship. Men need to lead, but men of godly character are required. Leaders need to teach sound doctrine, not deception or speculation. And what binds a church together is fellowship, not just membership. It's hard work to be a family. It involves responsibilities as well as privileges. Well, for 10 weeks, we've popped the hood on the church. But what about this hood? You know, there's a metal canopy that protects your car's engine. Sparks fire and pressures build and fluids pump under the safety of that hood. And the same is true with the church. There is an overarching canopy that covers everything else that happens within a church. It's called worship. Worship is the lid that protects what's good and beautiful in God's church. When we praise God, we remember who owns the church. When we're reminded that God's glory is at stake, we raise the bar on leadership. Sound doctrine, truth that has the power to save, incites more praise. And our fellowship stays grounded when our focus is on God's glory, not our own needs. You know, there's a slang expression for the hood of a car. Some people call it a bonnet. It's a bonnet. I like that. You know, in eras past, a bonnet was a fluffy, bulky, oversized headdress that just sort of gobbled up a woman's facial features. It was the antithesis of today's fashion. Rather than an accessory, it just swallowed up your head. But this is what adorns the bride of Christ. The glory and praise of God is like a bonnet. Hey, as beautiful as the church might become, it's never about the church. It's never about our features. The church is dwarfed by the beautiful bonnet on our head. The glory and grandeur and greatness of God. This is what should get the attention. The hood of the church is the worthiness of God. Now I love the pattern that Paul uses in his letter to young Timothy. 
He will charge Timothy, then he will praise God. Paul reminds Timothy of his duty. Then Paul directs his eyes toward God's glory. Lest Timothy become overwhelmed by his responsibilities, Paul is always shifting his focus back onto God. Watch what happens here in chapter 1. Listen to the challenge Paul issues to Timothy, verse 3. He says, I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. In chapter 1, he speaks to Timothy about perseverance, remain, the importance of sound doctrine, the need to expose false doctrine. He urges, he urges Timothy to stand up for the glorious gospel and to be faithful and to wage the good warfare. But notice what happens. After Paul challenges Timothy, he celebrates God. Verse 17 erupts in praise. Paul writes, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, here's what he's saying to Timothy. Timothy, why stay at your post? Well, it's because the King, he's eternal. Why press on rather than wear out? Because our King is immortal. Why maintain your integrity and stay faithful to your calling when the world around you could care less? It's because we're not trying to please the powers that be or a world who can see. Our king is invisible. Why reject human myths and speculation for God's word? Here's the reason. He alone is wise. To him be honor and glory forever and ever. To Paul, the church is not the end at all. He has an ulterior motive. Paul orders the church, and he requires sound doctrine, and he outlines godly leadership for the church, and he encourages responsible compassion for an overarching reason, to bring honor and glory to a God who is worthy of all praise. The worship of God is the hood of the church. Someone has suggested that 1 Timothy is a tag team effort. Paul goes back and forth between theology and doxology. Theology is the truth about God. Theos is Greek for God. Ology means a word or a saying. Thus, theology is the sayings or the teachings about God. Likewise, doxology is a compound word. Doxa means glory. Thus, doxology is a saying about God's glory. It's a shout out of praise to God. On the one hand, he causes us to think right thoughts about God. But then, that is coupled with the desire to then praise the God that we've learned about. Theology and doxology. Here's what happens as Paul writes to Timothy. He tells him how we should conduct ourselves in the house of God. But then he remembers why. It's God's love and grace. It's his plans and his wisdom. It's his holiness and his worthiness. This is why he deserves such attention. This is why we should order the church. And this causes Paul's heart to explode in worship. The end result is a letter here that's peppered with praise. It happens again in chapter 6, verse 15. There in verse 11, Paul tells young Timothy that the best defense is a good offense. As a man of God, he needs to flee from sin. He needs to avoid its snares. And to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, don't just avoid sin, Timothy. Pursue righteousness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. 
And then in verse 14, Paul points Timothy toward the finish line. I love this. He says, keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ appears. And just the thought of seeing Jesus fills the apostle with awe. So that in verse 15, the passion in Paul's heart just pushes to the surface in a volcano-like eruption. Paul spews out praise. He says, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, but he's just said, we'll see him, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Paul can't contain himself. His king is the king of kings. His Lord is the Lord of all lords. The infant is now immortal. A fragile baby dependent on a peasant couple now wields everlasting power. His manger set under a star that attracted curious wise men. Now he sits in glorious, unapproachable light. You see, a letter to the church of God stirs up in Paul the praise of God. And why? Because a beautiful bonnet sits on the head of the church. It's not about the church. It's not about our features. It's all about the greatness and the glory of God. When you pop the hood on the church, realize that that hood stands for worship and praise. In the 17th century, a Welch pastor named George Herbert wrote this prayer. He says, you who have given so much to me, give one thing more, a grateful heart. Not thankful when it pleases me, as if your blessings had some spare days, but such a heart whose pulse may be your praise. This was Paul, and this needs to be us. The heart of a church should beat with praise. Now, now here's what's happened over the last 10 weeks. We've touched on some touchy subjects, haven't we? I mean, nothing stirs up passion and prejudice like gender roles. Male and female roles were flashpoints in Paul's day. They're controversial today. We've talked about character among leaders. But these kinds of qualifications require some discrimination, some judgment. You have to make certain judgment calls. Ultimately, you eliminate some people, even good, likable, well-meaning people. Paul warns of legalistic tendencies and deceptive doctrines. This also stirs up controversy. It means somebody's right and somebody's wrong. You see, in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul refers to the church as the pillar and ground of the truth. The church is the bedrock and the buttress that gives dimension to our faith. You see, God doesn't just put us in a vacuum and tell us to figure out the Bible on our own. He gives us the church to inform and shape our personal faith. The church paints a common vision of what truth looks like to all people in all times. Without the church, we're not sure if we're on solid footing. Thus, he says to Timothy, you've got to be aggressive. And you've got to be definitive. And you've got to discriminate. Even be confrontational, Timothy, in standing up for the truth. Church leadership is not for wimps. Here are a few snippets of Paul's counsel. He says, charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Charge people. Reject profane and old wives' tales. Command and teach. Honor widows who are really widows. Those leaders who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all. Exhort these things. 
Two men are delivered to Satan that they may learn not to, be, not to blaspheme. <laughs> you know, with this job description, Timothy is going to have a few fights on his hands. And the job of the church hasn't changed. Today we live in a pluralistic society. Tolerance makes the world go round. And leave it to the church to throw a wrench in the gears. Insistence on truth and sound doctrine is like a squirt of mace in the face of a politically correct culture. It's an irritant. Understand the word discriminate, it's not a bad word. It's, it's not a curse word like some people would make you think. The, the word discriminate is really a good word. I mean, society discriminates all the time. Everywhere you go, people make judgment calls. I mean, not just anybody can do surgery. We're discriminating. You have to have the right qualifications if you want to perform surgery, at least on me. I mean, you can't drive if you're drunk. We discriminate against drunk drivers. We don't allow pedophiles to teach first grade. That's not good. We discriminate. You can't even smoke in the Waffle House. We discriminate. Our culture constantly discriminates. Every day, everywhere you go, judgments get rendered. Why? Because some ideas are better than other ideas. Dare I say it? There is a right and there is a wrong. You see, the other day I was at Kroger and I had to discriminate. I didn't want to. I was forced to discriminate. I'm standing there in the cracker aisle craving a box of Cheez-Its. I love Cheez-Its. But do you know what they have done to Cheez-Its? There are now 10 zillion varieties to choose from. There's whole grain Cheez-Its. And there's white cheddar Cheez-Its. And there's pepper jack Cheez-Its. And there's hot and spicy Cheez-Its. And there's duos Cheez-Its, whatever they are. And there's cheddar jack Cheez-Its. And there's four cheese Cheez-Its. And I'm standing there in the cracker aisle cracking up, man. I'm tired of making important decisions. I've been in church. I've been dealing with people's lives all day. I don't want to make any more decisions. I don't want to discriminate anymore. I just want a box of Cheez-Its. I want to be accepting of all Cheez-Its. <laughs> but I had to choose. And so finally, I gather myself, you know, I just kind of get myself back together. I gather myself up again, and you'd be proud of me. You guess what I chose? <laughs> Reduce fat Cheez-Its. There you go. Hey, but this is our world. We're pluralistic. We're multicultural. Nothing is simple anymore. By, by the way, I'm, I'm sorry if I offended the Pepper Jack Cheez-It lovers. But you see, the world around us has changed. But the job of the church remains the same. We're called by God to stand for biblical truth, no matter how foreign it might seem to the culture. Certainly, we should never use offensive language or be crass and crude and offend someone needlessly. But if you don't like what the Bible teaches, or if you don't want to change, 
Or how dare someone say I'm a sinner and you get offended? Deal with it, man. So be it. We should never, ever apologize for telling people God's truth. Here's the big idea in today's message. Too many pastors and churches these days are worried about offending certain segments of the population while the person we need to worry about offending is God. I don't care who else I offend. I want to please God. I don't want to offend Him. A church that understands its purpose makes life very, very simple. The church is all about a pleasing, is all about pleasing Jesus. The reason we exist is for His praise. This is why worship is the hood of the church. Like a car, we can pop the hood all we want. We can diagnose the engine and try to understand the various systems. And we can hang out looking at the engine under the car. But once we know the will of God, it's time to slam the hood. Case is closed. All that matters now is the kind of obedience that brings praise to God. The church is not about pleasing you. And it's not about pleasing me. It's about praising Jesus. The Lord owns the church. His praise is the end game of all our efforts. In 1972, economist Gordon Dahl made an interesting observation that still rings true today. He wrote these words, Most middle-class Americans tend to worship their work, to work at their play, and to play at their worship. Now here is the besetting sin of today's church. We play at our worship. We play at it. Church and the worship of God that goes on in most churches has become an American pastime, sort of like baseball or apple pie. It's something that you do when all the important stuff has already been taken care of and packed away. We limp our way through Sunday morning. We grumble if the pastor is five minutes over. We even turn our worship selfward. It's all about whether we like the songs or we like the singers Rather than the greatness and the glory of God, we evaluate worship by whether the songs give us goose pimples. That's how trivial we are. Sadly, we don't take God's word and sound doctrine seriously. Our Bible studies get sparsely attended. Apparently, we, we don't view biblical truth as preparation for eternity. If what's taught doesn't help me now, tomorrow, improve my marriage or help me with my kids or put some money in my wallet, then, then I've got no time for it and no interest in it. We'd rather be entertained. And when it comes to fellowship, most folks aren't interested in a family, especially if that's going to take any time or, or any effort. Why well, function as a family? You see, Gordon Dahl was spot on. Churches today play at their worship. And quite frankly, I'm not sure some of us are any different. Our Sunday mornings and, and our TBG groups, are, they're also sparsely attended. They should be packed, but they're not. We play at our worship while we worship our work. This is where we sink our heart and soul. Our blood, sweat, and tears goes into our job, into making a buck. Although we've never thought far enough ahead to evaluate whether that's really a good investment. 
I mean, do you really think God has put you on this earth only to work? To just grind out an existence to make money for the man? I mean, is that life's big enchilada? If that's your big enchilada, I feel for you. It's sad. Some people have woken up to the hollowness of work, and now they work to play. Oh, they take seriously their fantasy league and their video games. Their leisure time has become sacred to them. And this is why Christians come to church only when it's convenient. Play comes before worship. Oh, I work hard all week. I deserve some time off. I've earned a few hours to do as I please. Hey, I'll do church if and when it fits into my schedule. You know, it hit me recently. The anemic condition of today's church isn't the result of some pastoral sin or Christian hypocrisy. Here's our crippling disease. The love of leisure has become more important than the worship of God. That's true. God made us to worship so both our work and our play would flow from our worship. Instead, people today have gotten their priorities all out of whack. And we're haunted by the realization that life is not what it was meant to be. Listen to the remainder of that quote by Gordon Dahl. He started out, Most middle class Americans tend to worship their work, to work at their play, and to play at their worship. But then he writes, As a result, their meanings and values are distorted. Their relationships disintegrate faster than they can keep them in repair. And their lifestyles resemble a cast of characters in search of a plot. In other words, confusion reigns when worshipers seek fulfillment in lesser activities like work and play. Our jumbled priorities are what plague us. In a recent book, The Good and Beautiful Life, author James Smith discusses the latest research in neurology. Researchers took people of faith and asked them to recall what they felt when they were close to God either in prayer or in worship or in solitude. As these believers recalled their experiences, the neurologists, they scanned their brains. And near the center of the brain, one particular region lit up. The neurological activity was off the charts. But here's where the plot thickens. The researchers ran a similar test on another group of people. This time, the participants were exposed to an array of material possessions. The coolest gadgets, the hippest fashions. And guess what the neurologist discovered through the brain scans? The exact same area of gray matter that lit up in worship saw a similar spike when exposed to the material things. Apparently... The riches of this world can produce a worship-like sensation. This is what the Bible has been warning us about. The only difference between greed and worship is the God attached to each. Greed is the worship of money. Now what's interesting to me is that Paul wraps up this letter on church conduct with warnings about materialism. That's what chapter 6 is about. He says, the love of money is a threat to our worship. In verse 5, Paul warns about false teachers who suggest that godliness is a means of gain. 
They teach that poverty is a curse. Wealth is a sign of God's blessing. Therefore, God exists to make you rich. Money gets worshipped more than God instead of God. These are not the teachers Paul endorses. He commands us in verse 5, from such withdraw yourself. In contrast, listen to what Paul teaches Timothy in verse 6. He says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Contentment is what's priceless. Contentment is possessing stuff without that stuff possessing you. Philippians 3, 4 verse 13, it's the most misquoted verse in all of the New Testament. You know, a football player scores a touchdown and he turns to the camera and he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. A businessman builds a business, he becomes successful, he says to the big rally, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not what that verse is about. Paul is saying, I've got my ups, I've got my downs, I've had my wins, I've had my losses, yet despite my circumstances, I take my joy from Jesus. He says to the Philippians, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He says it's the joy of Jesus that produces his contentment. Once there was a city boy who went to visit his wife's family. They, they lived out on a Kansas farm. And one morning he, he rose early and, and he tagged along with his father-in-law as he went about his chores. The old farmer told him, he said, most city folks expect each year to be better than the last. They think it's normal to get an annual raise to earn more this year than you did last. As a farmer, I have good years and bad years. It all depends on rain at the right time. Dry days for harvest and no damaging storms. Some years we have more, some years less. And as this young man thought about the farmer's words, he was stunned by the contrast. He realized that the old man's words actually applied to all of us. Finances, marriage, career, families, all of life has its lean years and its abundant years. It's bumps and it's troughs. But contentment stays the course. It finds its joy by worshiping Jesus. Here is Paul's warning to Timothy, verse 9. He says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Notice it's not money that's evil. Money's a tool. It's the love of money that becomes evil. Money is a good thing, in fact. But when you take a good thing and you elevate it to an ultimate thing, you've created an idol. When you put an item or an idea or even an ideal of what you think life should be up on the pedestal and you worship it, you think about it constantly and you spend all your time and effort in its pursuit and you even make sacrifice to it, it's become your God. And this is easy to do with money, especially at Christmas time. 
Probably everybody here this morning is either obsessed about what we're getting or how we're going to afford what we're given. Jesus warns us, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Timothy Keller writes these words. Jesus warns people far more often about greed than about sex. Yet almost no one thinks they are guilty of it. Therefore, we should all begin with a working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. If greed hides itself so deeply, no one should be confident that it is not a problem for them. Here's how we deceive ourselves. We find the socioeconomic bracket to which we aspire. And then we measure ourselves against other people in that strata. And trust me, in any pool of people, you can always find someone with more bedrooms than you. And with a fancier car than you. And with a TV that has more pixels than your TV. And, and someone who has a larger salary than you have. This is how we feel justified in desiring more. When we put money ahead of church and worship and God, oh, we think to ourselves, we're not being materialistic, we're just trying to keep up. What we should do is compare ourselves to the two and a half billion people in the world who live on less than two American dollars a day. That's who we should compare ourselves to. Maybe we already have enough, at least for one day. Perhaps a more appropriate use of our time and effort would be to go to church and worship God and give back to Him and say thanks for all He's done for us. Paul leaves us with this final thought in verse 17. He says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. It's okay to have nice stuff. Poverty is no virtue, but just don't trust in your riches. If you care more about your net worth than God's worthiness, if you're more into getting wealth than giving worship, you need to repent. I love how Mark Driscoll puts it. If you sleep better because there's money in the bank, not because the tomb is empty, something is wrong. Here's what I believe. A heart full of worship has a handout to give. This is why he tells us in verse 18, Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. Again, money is a tool that we can use to bless people and to thank God. This is why the ultimate expression of worship isn't singing or caroling or meditating or raising your hands to God. It's reaching your hands out and giving. That's the ultimate expression of worship. You glorify the greatest giver of all when you choose to be like Him. God gives us His grace in order to make us gracious people. A church that understands worship will be a gathering of givers. Well, for the last 10 weeks, we've been looking at the church. This morning, we're done. We're slamming the hood. We're cranking the engine. We're heading out into the next 30 years. But the mission of the church stays the same. 
there is one overarching purpose for all we do, and that is to praise and please our Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, thank you for your words today. We thank you, Lord, for these uh, meditations on the church, these thoughts concerning your church. Lord, you know my heart. You know how much I love your church. I've really given my life, my adult life, to your church, even this church. And I desire us, Lord, to be all that we've been called to be. And yet I sense we fall so short. Lord, help us to to reorder our priorities. Help us to understand our purpose. Lord, the church matters so much to you and it needs to matter more to us. Lord, help us move in that direction. Lord, help us take seriously our worship. It is the overarching purpose of all we do. Lord, we thank you for those that that call Calvary Chapel their home. Lord, we pray that we could be a, a true family, that we could interact with one another as family, and that we could be the church in this dark and needy place. We love you, Lord. We thank you so much for loving us. We ask for you to continue to work in and through us in the days ahead. We pray it all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.